Hello, everyone, and welcome to West of the Sea, a serial podcast audiobook written and narrated by me, Jacob Stewart. If you like the story and want to support me, take a minute to leave a five-star review in iTunes. It really helps get the word out. The Kindle version of this book and a physical copy will be available for purchase this summer. I'll have more details for you as we get closer to the release date. Just a quick content warning, this audiobook does contain some violence and profanity and might not be appropriate for younger listeners. Just thought I would give you a heads up. With that said, I hope you enjoy it. If you do, be sure to tell a friend about it. Here we go. Part 4 Many go down, and few return to sunlit lands. C.S. Lewis, The Silver Chair, 1953 Chapter 1 Shannon came to in a cell with stone walls and an iron gate about fifty feet square. He was lying on a bed of grass with a simple pillow underneath his head. It was almost completely dark, but a fire down the corridor from his cell gave off enough light to see and assess his surroundings. The stone beneath him had the radiating cool of the floor of a cave, and he could sense that he was deep inside of the mountain. It was the same feeling he had as a child when he would explore the caves around his house. Go deep enough and the temperature remains the same, 45 degrees year-round no matter the weather outside. More than that, there was a weight above him. He could feel it. He could also feel the presence of another person in the cell with him, but not like the presence of a person who's just walked into the room or the feeling that someone is watching you behind your back. It was thinner than that. Ghostly. Killer, the presence whispered. Finally awake. Been too long. It was Varg. He sat in the corner opposite Shannon, deep in the shadow. Even with his eyes adjusted to the dark, Shannon could only barely see him, his head and neck still bent at the unnatural angle at which he died just days earlier. He was throwing pebbles against the wall. They're going to find out, Varg said. Before Shannon could answer, he heard a voice from down the hall a ways. Shannon? It was barely more than a whisper, but he recognized Safia's voice. Are you okay? Are you all right? Shannon stood up, disturbed by Varg's presence but unafraid of him now, and craned his neck in order to get a better sense of his surroundings. His was the third cell from the door in a narrow hallway that ended to his right. To his left there were two more, and the fire through the doorway cast a hellish glow over the tunnel. Yeah, I'm here. Yule? Nope, just me, said a gruff voice from the end of the hallway. It was Pierre. Do we know where we are? How we got here? Shannon asked. I only remember running down the stairs. It was then that he noticed a gnawing pain in the back of his head. He felt around. It was warm and wet, and when he brought his hand to his face, he could see a smear of blood on his fingertips. Someone hit me in the back of the head. You were the first to go down. Safia was second. I fought as well as I could in the darkness, but there were too many of them. They dragged us to these cells about thirty minutes ago. Did you get a good look at them? Shannon asked. Safia answered this time. Only briefly. They're human-sized. They spoke English from what I heard. 
probably mountain dwellers who aren't used to people walking on their turf. Shannon was about to ask another question when he saw a figure walk through the doorway at the end of the hall and the words caught in his throat. The man glided past the first two cells to Shannon's and took a ring of heavy keys that jangled in the dark out of his cloak. He selected one of them with his long, thin fingers and used it to unlock the cell. It was then that Shannon got a good look at his eyes. They were hazed over with some kind of film. He had seen it in elderly men with cataracts, but the man in front of him couldn't have been older than thirty at the most. Come, he said. Shannon followed him out of the cell. He placed manacles on Shannon's hands and feet and proceeded to the other two cells. He took Sophia and Yule out and shackled them as well. They followed him into the fireplace room, where they were made to sit on a couch hewn from the rock and covered with rough fabric and pillows that seemed to be made out of burlap and straw. Shannon noticed the man's robes for the first time. They looked smooth and soft, like linen, and contrasted with the scratchy, rocky beds and couch the trio now sat upon. It reminded him of the vestments the priest wore from his days in church as a child. They were embroidered with a pattern that, in the dim light, looked like hammers and cups and ropes. Pierre spoke first. Well, you've got a captive audience. He rattled the chains attached to him. I'd like to know if there's any way for us to leave as soon as possible. We... The man in the robe slapped Pierre across the face with the back of his hand. His ring left a gouge in Pierre's cheek that began to bleed freely. Do not speak he said. There was no hint of anger or malice in his voice, only a cold control. This is a day of high silence. Our lady will be present shortly, and you will answer to her alone. Sophia dabbed at Pierre's wound with the sleeve of her shirt. It's all right, he whispered, after the robed man left. It's not that bad. You're bleeding all over your shirt. Sophia barely stifled her shaky voice. Face wounds always bleed a lot. It's okay. Pierre took her hand in his and set it down on the couch beside him. After a few minutes of waiting, a woman walked into the room wearing similar robes as the first man, followed by a train of three others. Two women and the man who had unlocked their cells. They all had the same milky cataracts, and Shannon wondered how they saw in this dark underworld, or if they needed to see at all. The woman and her companions sat opposite the trio, and an uncomfortable silence laid out over the room. Shannon could hear people speaking in hushed voices just beyond the walls of the room. It seemed as though they were in an entire world of darkness and deep quiet. After a good while, the woman spoke. She had a voice that sounded like stone, and an accent from an old storied world that hinted at blood and magic. You have come at an auspicious time. Our high holy day is almost here. You will choose one among yourselves to go beneath the waters as an offering to the clouds and the moon. This will ensure our safety in the coming year. The woman produced a cup from under her expansive robes, brimming with water. She handed it to Pierre. Drink. May I ask a question? Pierre said. The woman nodded, almost imperceptibly. What will happen if I do, and what will happen if I don't? If you drink, 
you will know the power of the waters and why we must choose one to go beneath them. If you do not, we will imprison you again until you are ready to drink. Pierre took the cup in his hands. It was heavy with water and gold, and the gemstones that dotted the rim and handle shone like viscera in the firelight. He looked the woman in the eyes and poured it out on the ground. Immediately, the two women and the man rushed forward and began dragging the three travelers back through the doorway. He was met with blows to his head and body that doubled him over in pain. They were thrown back into the cells, and the fire that provided what seemed like the only light in the world was extinguished. Varg wouldn't shut up. I know, and soon they will know too. Shannon couldn't sleep couldn't stomach the cold gruel his captors slid through the bars the next morning. Was it morning, he thought. Days didn't exist any longer. There was only the darkness of the cell, of the mountain, and the constant, unending, relentless monologue from Varg. He knew he shouldn't answer. He would seem crazy. He felt crazy, tormented by a man he had murdered and now shared a prison cell with. Don't speak to him. Don't look at him. He repeated this mantra in his head, but he wasn't even safe there. Speak to me. Look at me. Varg would shout to nobody but Shannon. Remember what you did to me. It's not so different from what you did to the ones you said you loved. And this secret you've dragged around since then will not stay silent long, will it? You can't help but think of it sometimes. About what you did. About what you didn't do. The woman visited him the next night while the others were sleeping. She unlocked the cell and whispered an invitation for Shannon to come out with her. He obeyed, anything to get him away from his tormentor. She led him out to the sitting room, down the hall, and then through a series of dark passages and doorways. Nothing was lit, and Shannon stumbled blindly behind this woman who darted around corners and down stone passageways like she had been navigating them her whole life. He felt the granite scrape beneath his feet. He smelled the moisture that gathered on the floor and ceiling. Breaths of wind blew his clothes this way and that as he tried to keep up. And then they were free. Out of the cold, narrow underworld and onto a broad veranda overlooking a vast city lit by the moon. Shannon gasped when he saw it. It must have been miles wide, all resting in the hollow crater of a long-dead volcano, Walls rising for thousands of feet on all sides. Light from the moon shining down through a hole at the top the size of a football stadium. And on the far side, cascading down from near the top, a massive waterfall that plunged down into the darkness. He walked to a low wall and placed his hands on the cold, smooth marble, taking the scene in. Irina stayed behind him, looking off into the distance but seeing nothing. Who is the man in the cell with you? She asked. A man that I killed a few days ago, Shannon said. He had no reason to lie to her. She held all the cards. And this man, he torments you? She said. Irina was pacing deliberately now, back and forth across the deck. All the time, Shannon said. He looked at the cramped streets and blocks of houses some two hundred feet below him. 
He saw figures darting in and out of back alleyways, carrying jars, leading children by the hand, speaking on porches and in doorways. The city was buzzing with activity, but no torches could be seen anywhere. The only action that could be seen was that which was revealed by the moonlight. I know you do not sleep. I know you carry something with you that you would like to forget, she said to him. We can help you. It seems the gods have seen fit to arrange a mutually beneficial relationship for us. And if I say no? This city must be protected at all costs. You can either go beneath the waters on the holy day and your friends can leave, or you will all perish. Shannon turned to her. If I drink this water, how do I know my friends will be safe? How can I be sure you won't kill all of them anyways? Irina put her right hand up and said, I swear by the gods, old and new, that your friends will be safe, but only if you go beneath the waters on the next full moon. This is the most solemn oath I can take before you. Shannon could only whimper and curl up tighter in the corner of the cell. But as the hours passed and the endless night trudged on, he thought about the cup. At the moment, forgetting seemed like an awfully generous offer. And if he could never atone, never see his wife and child again to ask their forgiveness, maybe the best option was to simply forget. Chapter 2 The next morning, Shannon, Pierre, and Sophia were again led out of their cells and into the main area. The fire still burning and heating the room and making them sweat in their clothes, which were already stained and dirty from traveling. None of them had slept well, but Shannon had passed out from exhaustion shortly after his midnight talk with Irina. Now they all sat in the room together, and none of the captives knew if they should speak first or not. Breakfast was brought to them, and it was passable. Certainly better than standard prison fare. Sophia wondered why they were being treated better this morning, keeping in mind the abuse that Pierre had suffered the night before. But now someone tended his wounds, and now another man in priestly robes came in and washed their feet while they ate a hot meal with tea and earthenware mugs. Irina sat and watched all of it, never making a sound, her glossed-over eyes observing everything and nothing at the same time. Pierre decided to break the silence. So now are we your friends? Is this how you treat your friends? Beating them one moment and washing their feet the next morning? He had not eaten a bite of his breakfast, or taken a single sip from the tea provided for them. You are not our captives any longer, and we would not dishonor the gods by treating you as such. You are now our guests, Irina said. Come, follow me. We have much to show you before the new moon. She led the trio out through the same passage that Shannon had gone down the previous night until they too saw the view of the city now bathed in pale sunlight. Snowflakes drifted down from the opening up top, landing lightly on the houses below and stinging Sophia's exposed skin. She thought to herself that she had never seen anything quite so beautiful or strange as this city cut from the very rock of the mountain. It was noble and sturdy, and would have been breathtaking if not for the circumstances of her seeing it for the first time. Before she could ask any questions, they were led down a steep set of stairs cut into the cliff face. There was no guardrail, and Sophia held her breath as she descended, 
wondering the whole time how on earth her blind guides could skip down the stairs so quickly without falling. They must have done this a hundred times, a thousand times. At the base of the stairs, there were three roads leading out into the city. Great stone buildings towered above them, most at least four stories high. They took the middle road and walked towards the city center. More and more people came with them as they approached what looked like a great fountain in a huge square. Soon there were hundreds of blind people, all wearing white robes, following them. Some were carrying children, some held hands. Some were old, some young. All of them were ghostly white, almost all the same shade as their robes, and they stuck to the deep shadows as best they could, like they were afraid the meek sunlight shining down on them would burn them alive. Excited murmurs echoed off the canyon-like walls of the buildings around them and the walls of the mountain itself. The streets were smooth and masterfully paved. Sophia did not trip or catch her foot on a stone as she walked down the street, now in the middle of a great chattering crowd. She looked up and saw an old blind woman at a windowsill, looking down on them and smiling. They passed alleyways and small streets that wound down stairs to lower parts of the city, and Sophia noticed then that there were multiple levels to this place, and they were simply on the top floor. They crossed a bridge, and she caught a glimpse of the rest of the city, staggering downwards in plateaus, each flat place filled with houses and streets, down until they were lost in a great deep gloom where no sunlight could reach. It seemed to go on deeper and deeper forever. Safia almost had vertigo from the sight of it, so she fixed her eyes straight ahead and tried to keep up with the crowd, many of whom were jogging now, like they couldn't get to their destination fast enough. They reached the large square, and Safia now saw that it was not a fountain in the middle of it, but a large altar with figures carved into it. Beautiful statues, human and animal faces, scenes from nature, from mythologies she had never seen before. Gods and goddesses reaching out, touching, smiting, ascending into the heavens. The altar was three stories high, with a staircase etched into the side of it, covered with more carvings than she could count. It was a masterpiece, a work of art any sculptor would be proud to have a hand in, but the artistry didn't stop there. All around the square, carved into the buildings that surrounded it, was a great scene that played out in larger-than-life still images. To her left was carved a great crowd of people, with a single woman at the front pointing ahead. She was draped in a cloth that seemed to flow with the wind, even though it was carved into stone. Next was an image so large it required two buildings. The same crowd climbing a mountain carrying pickaxes, torches, bundles of wood, children on parents' backs and pack animals, all ascending a treacherous path to the summit. Then the last image. Characters fifty feet high, arranged in what looked like a church service, with a woman at the head arrayed in ceremonial robes with a crown of stone on her head. People kneeling, weeping, raising their hands in praise, and behind it all a hundred-foot-high sculpture in flawless white marble of a waterfall draining into a giant, royally engraved cup. It was without a doubt the most impressive feat of engineering and art that Sophia had ever seen in her life, made more impressive by the fact that it had apparently been carved by blind craftspeople. 
She saw something in the eyes of the crowd sculpted into the rock. A desperation for inclusion, a longing for release from oppression, the relief of captives set free. But that look only existed in the first two murals. In the final one, each member of the crowd had only blank marble where their eyes should be. Irina ascended the marble steps to the top of the altar. The crowd fell silent and watched as a mother and child followed after her. From her position, Sofia could see that this child had beautiful green eyes, uncovered by the film that affected the rest of the crowd. She felt a stone settle in her guts as she realized what was happening. The mother laid her child on a slab right next to Irina. No one moved, no one breathed, like they were all waiting for the fireworks on the 4th of July. Sofia wanted to do something, to do anything, but how could she in the midst of such a great crowd? She clenched her fists and prayed that her intuition was wrong. Noble friends, welcome, Irina said. For such a small old woman, her voice could be heard all around the square with no difficulty. Today is the beginning of a holy week. The crowd erupted into cheers and clapping. Soon the new moon will be upon us, and we will make offerings to the gods for our safety and good fortune. More cheers, more shouts of approval. Before we begin the festivities, we have a new little one to initiate into our sacred way. Her faithful mother has brought her here to take her first steps onto the path. Irina turned to the woman who had led the child up the steps. Tell the people why you have brought your daughter here. Memory is pain, the woman shouted at the top of her lungs. Her daughter lay still on the slab. Tell them why you have brought your daughter here, Irina shouted back. We must be blind to life's suffering. We must take away the eyes for the good of the soul. Tears were streaming down the woman's face. She was caught in a passionate fervor. Do you commit your daughter to the path? Irina asked the woman, who was swaying now in a non-existent breeze. Yes, she shouted. It was then that Sofia noticed a steaming cup on the slab next to the little girl. Louder, Irina said. To this city I now commit my daughter, the woman shouted, nearly doubled over as if she was in pain. Irina took the steaming cup and held it aloft over the still child on the slab. She tilted it, pouring the boiling substance into the girl's eyes. Sofia screamed and forced her way forward, desperate to fight through the crowd, to save the child, but strong arms held her back. She threw elbows, knees, punches. She cleared a small space in front of her and threw a man to the ground. Another man came at her, and she spun him around and used his body like a battering ram to clear a lane through the teeming mass of people, but the closer she got, the more people piled in behind and all around her. Shannon and Pierre did their best to close the gap between her and them, but there were just too many bodies. Two women brought her to the cold, hard ground and knocked her unconscious. Chapter 3 You shouldn't have done that, Shannon hissed at Sophia as two men in robes dragged them back through the streets and to their cells. She tasted the awful, coppery taste of blood in her mouth and smelled it on her clothes. Her feet scraped against the stones when she lost her balance, but the men kept a steady pace and dragged her along all the same. Down the street, across the bridge, 
between the buildings, up the stairs, and back into a cell where she sat, dabbing the blood off her face with a sleeve that was already dripping wet. Sophia laughed a little to herself. She hadn't been beaten this badly in a while. It wasn't enjoyable, but it felt better than having done nothing at all to help. All things considered, her whole life she would have rather been beaten for standing up than rewarded for sitting down. When people resorted to violence against her, she felt like she had won, even if it hurt, even if she bled. Hours later, she heard footsteps coming down the hall, then the clanging, jangly sound of her cell door being opened. The guards again dragged her out into the common area down the hall and sat her down on the cold stone bench. Her lip hurt where it had been split by the fist of a woman in the crowd, and she could feel a black eye developing on the left side of her face. So she was surprised when a gentle hand with a warm, moist towel began wiping the blood off her cheeks. First around her eye, and she winced back at the sharp pain, but the hand followed her back and strong arms held her in place. When Irina had finished washing Sofia's face, she rang out the towel into a stone bowl sitting on the floor and sat down across from her on the other stone bench. I hope we can talk about this morning, Irina said softly. I want you to understand why we do the things we do. There's nothing to talk about, Sofia said. You're monsters, every last one of you. A child, she could barely choke out the words over the growing rage inside of her. A child. Why would you do something like that? When I was five years old, I had a favorite cow on our family farm, Irina said. I named her Zieko. It means baby in my language. She had beautiful brown eyes and soft skin. She was gentle. I used to ride on her back through our fields. I had no brothers or sisters, so Zieko was my sister. Then one afternoon, my mother called me into the barn. She was standing next to Zieko with a knife. She cut the cow's throat from ear to ear, spilling all of its blood into a rusty bucket on the floor of the barn. Zieko made an awful sound, and I rushed over to my mother, screaming and beating her, begging her to stop, but she did not stop. She had tied a rope to Zieko's leg, and when she hoisted her high up to drain the blood, I saw all the life go out of her eyes. She took the knife and made a cut from Zieko's neck down through her belly to her groin and let all the organs fall out. Then she removed the skin and cut off the head. She made me watch all of it. I have seen many things die in my life. I have seen many people in things that I love hurt by others or by themselves. I saw all of this with my eyes, and I remember because I saw it. We are not hurting this girl like you accuse us of doing. We are removing a threat. Memory is the power of pain, and when we refuse to look upon death and grief and sorrow, our pain will be less because our memory will be less. This is why we blind the children, for their own good. That is why we drink the water, to keep us from remembering and to keep us from pain. That is why your friend in the other cell has agreed to go beneath the waters on the holy day so that he will remember his pain no more. Wait, wait, stop. Which friend? Sophia asked. Shannon. In two days he will go beneath the waters for our holiest ceremony. 
What do you mean beneath? I mean that all of the pain of the community will be put inside of him, and he will carry it far away into the depths so that we will be safe from harm. You can't do this, Safia screamed at Shannon through the walls of the cell. Pierre was shouting as well. We will find another way. Just please do not do this. Stop it, Shannon shouted back, the first thing he had said in quite a while, since the ceremony that morning. There was a powerful anger in his voice, a deep pain that shocked the others into silence. I'm going to do it. Please don't try and make me stop. I'll do whatever they want, and you can go free. I need to do this. Why? Safia asked. Why do you need to? We can find another way. Shannon didn't answer. Chapter 4 Yule and Oliver had, unknown to the rest of the group, been down inside the city for days, looking for them. The two arrived only minutes after the three had been arrested and whisked away to their prison in the stone walls of the cavern, but they had run out of leads. On the first night they had stolen cloaks off a washing line and located a quiet place under a great stone bridge to sleep and rest. They blended in well with the crowds and were even able to glean some information from them. A great festival was happening this week, lots of things to do, lots of things to prepare. They were even able to get a layout of the city, or at least the top level. It seemed to descend forever down into the mountain. But none of their questions brought them any closer to Sophia, Shannon, and Pierre. Until, that is, the morning of the blinding ceremony. Oliver and Yule stood at the edge of the great crowd, curious about what was happening up on the high altar. When the true nature of the ritual became apparent, Oliver had to hold Yule back from rushing in. Not an easy task. You cannot risk exposing us, he whispered, desperately trying to drag the huge man back from the mass of people ahead. Yule was about to break his grip and surge ahead anyways when they heard a scream coming from the other side. They quickly made their way around and finally saw their companions being dragged out of the ceremony. It looked like Sophia was unconscious. Yule felt a little proud of her. They tailed them back to the prison, a great, brutalist building on the edge of town, many stories high, with treacherous stairs spider-webbing up the side of it. About a block away, there was an empty house, and the two men watched from the windows as they debated a plan. We go in, guns blazing. You know the Powell Doctrine? Yule asked. He was anxious to start. He didn't want his friends to die. I'm afraid my military history has some gaps in it. Enlighten me, Oliver said. Victory through overwhelming force. We make them give us our people back. And by what overwhelming force do you propose we do this? There are two of us and possibly tens of thousands of them. We convince them that we've got an army outside, ready to storm the place if we don't get what we want. You want to bluff our way out of this? Oliver asked. Where do we even begin? They began by knocking on the door of the prison pounding on it, shouting, Open up! Open up in the name of the king! Yule drew himself up to his full height and put on his meanest sneer. A young man with a shaved head opened the door. Several other men were behind him. Yule and Oliver were outnumbered, but as long as they kept up the charade, they knew the power was on their side. Who are you? What are you doing here? The young man asked. 
Ewell pushed him aside and strode through the door with Oliver close behind. Bring wine and food, he commanded one of the other guards. Don't just stand there, boy. Show some damn respect for an ambassador. Sir, I really... you can't be here. Who are you? he asked, stumbling over himself. Who is he? Oliver asked in a viciously mocking tone. He struck the boy across the face. Where are your elders, and how did they fail to raise you with any respect for royalty? We act on behalf of the king, with all authority and power. Go fetch us some food and drink, and bring back whoever is in charge of this circus. The boy ran out of the room. Two others stayed back, awkwardly staring at the walls. Slack-jawed idiots, Ewell roared at them, and they scurried off after their partner. He sat his massive frame down on one of the stone benches, and Oliver followed suit. He steadied his lantern, hooked to his staff on the stone floor. The two nodded at one another and took a deep breath before Irina walked into the room, flanked by more guards. What is the meaning of all this? Who are you? Are you in charge here? Ewell asked. What is your name? My name is Irina, and yes, I am in charge. Again, I ask you, what is all of this? Irina, do you make a habit of training your men to spit in the face of royalty? Ewell said. Do you teach them from a young age to disrespect their elders and disregard the heavenly station of the king? Oliver said. Ewell stood up and walked forward. You have committed a grave error, and I hope it is only an error and not an act of war like my generals believe. I'm a little more inclined to mercy and understanding than them, but only a little. So explain yourself, and you might spare this pathetic settlement from the fate just waiting outside. You come here to threaten me? Irina asked. As I should, Yule shouted, causing Irina and the men to step backwards. You have imprisoned the gods' chosen prince like some common criminal. Nations have burned for less. Hand him over to us, along with his compatriots, and we will forget this transgression. The people in the cell are not royalty. They're simply trespassers and must be punished as such, Irina said. Trespassers? It was Oliver's turn to speak now. And I say all of you are trespassing now, and have been for a century. We have graciously let you live inside this mountain, which is the king's by right, but do not presume that our kindness gives you ownership or a right to life. You live and die, you exist or perish by our good disposition. And what proof do you have, Irina said? What proof that you are envoys of a king? I know of no king outside the mountain. I know of no great kingdom that could destroy us at a moment's notice. How do I know you're not also liars as well as trespassers? This is my proof, Ewell said. His voice was quiet now, rumbling. I call heaven and earth to witness against you. His lantern began to glow, and he handed it over to Irina. We come with the power of the gods, who have designated us and our king, who hold you in contempt as the sovereign rulers of the earth. The lantern began to burn hotter and hotter in Irina's hands. She had to drop it. The flames spat out of the windows of the lanterns, blue hot and growing. They crept along the floor and climbed the walls. The temperature rose steadily and the sound of the flames grew louder and louder. Now is your time to decide, Yule shouted over the sound of the fire. Decide, Irina, if your whole world ends in fire and blood. Stop! 
she shouted. The flames subsided. Yule picked up his steaming, glowing lantern off the ground. Take your precious captives and go. Play along, Oliver whispered as he took Pierre, Sophia, and Shannon out of the cells. Yule stood in the common room, towering over the guards, steady as a mountain. When he saw Shannon, he knelt. Your Majesty. Shannon said nothing until Oliver elbowed him in the side. Stand up, he managed to get out. Yule stood and said, We will be taking our leave now. The pass behind us collapsed when we came through. I assume there's another exit? Yes. Follow the main road across the city. One hour's walk. You'll reach another bridge over a chasm that goes past the waterfall. There's a tunnel that will lead you to the other side of the mountain. Tell your generals we have complied with all your requests. They walked through the city, and a crowd began to follow them. At first it was small, but then one by one more began to join. Old and young men, women and children, couples and groups of youth. Irina had given them a guard to escort them to the edge of the city. He seemed nervous. They crossed the first bridge into the main square and saw the stone murals. They walked past the great altar and down another road none of them had been on before. The crowd was now in the hundreds. Someone ran up and touched Shannon's cloak, and he shouted to the crowd, They're taking him to the water! Now an electric energy surged through the people. The guard hurried them along at a slight jog. Jeers and shouts from the crowd. Somebody threw a stone, and it struck Shannon on the face. He went down, and Ewell dragged him to his feet before the mob could seize him. They shouted and cheered. They mocked and threw more stones. Is this supposed to be happening? Pierre asked, having to half-shout over the din of the crowd, dodging projectiles. Keep walking. We're almost there, the guard said. They rounded a corner and saw the bridge and the waterfall, towering some 1,000 feet above them. Pierre could feel droplets of water misting his face from the powerful stream. The group was at a full run now, and the crowd was jogging behind them. It seemed like everyone in the city had come out, expecting something to happen. The bridge was 300 yards long if it was a foot. The companions, with the guard alongside them, ran until they reached the center and then ground to a dead stop. More guards came out from behind a pillar on the bridge and surrounded them. I'm sorry, the first one said. They all had swords drawn. The crowd had stopped at the edge of the bridge, and one person made their way forward, stepping out from the tangle of bodies. Irina Kalaka walked with confidence towards the group. The roar of the waterfall soothed her. The people behind had gone quiet. She stopped when she was just a few feet away from Shannon and the rest. The city needs a sacrifice, she said. There was no malice in her voice, just serenity. I would have preferred to do this some other way, but you have left me no choice. If you don't let us go, there's an army waiting to storm this city and burn it to the ground, Yule shouted. Three men were holding him down on the cobblestone bridge at Spear Point. Please, Ranger, Irina said. I have forgotten much, but I could never forget those lanterns. Such clever magic. We have a few of them here, rusting away in basements. You are no ambassador, 
And that, she pointed to Shannon, is no king, just a sad, lonely man. Are you ready, your majesty? Shannon nodded and took Irina's hand. Ewell's eyes went wide with surprise. What are you doing? he asked, struggling in vain against the guards. I'm sorry, Ewell, Shannon said. I'm sorry for everything, for leading all of you out here. It's a fool's errand, and I'm tired. It's time for it to end. No, stop. We can still find your family. Just a little while longer. I promise you we can find them. Ewell shouted after Shannon as Irina led him up to the lip of the bridge. He stood on the edge, and the crowd began to murmur again. The murmur turned to a growl, and the growl into a low roar. Waves of motion, back and forth, people stepping onto the bridge now, hesitantly at first, and then all at once. Thousands ran at a dead sprint, hoping to catch a glimpse of the most holy ritual, the plunging, the carrying away of all their sorrow. Shannon stood, his arms outstretched above an endless yawning chasm. The waterfall drenched him, and the sound of crashing water made him deaf to the sound of the bridge crumbling. At first the cracks and tremors were light, but as more and more people rushed onto the bridge, it began to shake in earnest. He opened his eyes, thrown slightly off balance, and looked back at the mass of humans rushing towards him. Something huge broke away from the supporting arches beneath the surface of the bridge, and dozens of people fell to their knees. The guards lost their grip on Ewell and the rest. The bridge was buckling now, massive gaps appearing, people falling down into oblivion. Shannon felt a hand grab him and pull him back from the ledge. It was Sophia. They ran, dodging the holes in the bridge, leaping across overturned stones the size of cars, struggling to maintain their balance as the whole superstructure fell to pieces. And then they were on the other side. On solid rock, with the bridge falling away into the darkness behind them, taking hundreds with it. Irina had not lied about the tunnel. It did lead out of the mountain. And after what seemed like hours of walking, they finally saw sunlight again. They exited the mountain onto a wide grassy slope that gently fell down to a beach with a single red A-frame house on top of the dunes. A dock extended a ways out into the ocean, and there was a small sailboat tied to it. Do you know anything about this? Sophia asked Ewell, nodding towards the house. Are we supposed to go there? My knowledge of this place extends only so far. There's smoke coming out of the chimney, though, so at least we know someone is home. They were about to continue the conversation, but Shannon fell to the ground in front of them. Ewell rushed to his side. What's wrong? he asked, shaking him. Why didn't you let me die? Shannon asked. Ewell stepped back. What do you mean? Back there. I wanted to die. I wanted to forget. Why? The wave of shock that had held back his tears subsided, and Shannon was overcome. He leaned into Ewell and cried. They're dead because of me. I just wanted to forget. The group was stunned. Nobody spoke. Shannon faced them all. The night they died, I was supposed to pick up my daughter from her friend's house, but I was with someone. I had been seeing her for weeks. My wife called me, but I didn't pick up, so she went instead. 
If I had just... His words disintegrated into sobs. I deserved it. I deserve to die. Chapter 5 Margaret Washington was always prepared for visitors. Her tidy house by the sea, up on the dunes, just a short walk away from the dock, was small but welcoming. She kept spare rooms clean and tidy. Her kitchen was almost always stocked, and most days there was a fire in the cast-iron stove that kept the coastal chill out. It was a red A-frame house, like the one her father had built on the Oregon coast when she was a child. She tried to reproduce it down to the studs in remembrance of him. He had always been a kind and welcoming man, with smile lines on his eyes who smelled faintly of cinder blocks. And God knows the visitors she had were usually in desperate need of some comfort. The morning that Ewell, Shannon, and the rest of the company arrived at her house, she was lashing the sailboat to the dock after a sunrise trip north to a rock formation that looked like an elephant. Margaret often traveled up and down the coast, mapping it and making notes on whatever she found there. The elephant rock had strange markings in it that looked like Cyrillic. She sat in the boat with her paper and charcoal in hand and etched them onto the page, wondering if the poor soul that had left them there knew they were heading in the wrong direction. As far as Margaret knew, which was as best as anyone knew, there was nothing north of her cabin but miles upon miles of wild coastline that grew colder and colder around each bend. She had taken a week's worth of supplies north once and not seen a single soul the entire journey. This land of the dead was empty even of animals. None of the familiar coastal fauna she remembered from her childhood lived here. No sea lions, no seagulls, no fish, squirrels, or deer. Not even mosquitoes during the summer months. Just sand and hard scrabble trees that could survive the high winds. That and whatever travelers left behind. Smoldering campfires, food, tracks. Sometimes she found bodies and did her best to conduct a small funeral with a shallow grave. During these ceremonies, she would recite the only Bible verse she ever bothered to remember. I return you to the ground from which you were taken. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Margaret had planned on cross-referencing the symbols she found etched into the rock with an old Russian-to-English dictionary in her house, but she was interrupted by the sight of five strangers in her side yard. This was no surprise. After all, Margaret Washington was always prepared for visitors, and these didn't look any more distraught than the usual ones who dropped by her house on the coast. The way over the mountain was filled with danger, and those who made it over were usually worse for wear. She directed the grungy lot inside and led them down a hallway to a room with a tub. Take turns and don't use too much hot water. I've only got so much. Safia went first, then Oliver, Pierre, and Shannon. Ewell waited in the living room, which smelled pleasantly of cedar and salt water. A kettle on the wood stove began to scream, so Margaret removed it and poured Ewell a cup of tea. He set it on an end table next to the worn-in but comfortable couch he was currently sitting in. Thank you for having us, Ewell started. Margaret. Margaret, your house was a sight for sore eyes. Margaret waved her hand as if to dismiss the compliment. Oh, please, I've been here a long, long time, 
I'm sure you have questions. About? Yule asked. About what's next, Margaret said. Do you know what comes next? Yule was surprised to see another living soul on this side of the mountain, and even more surprised that she knew anything about what lay beyond. Forgive me, but I always assumed... Well, I don't know what I assumed. My friend, the young man washing up now, he has... Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a living person come here? I mean, a person who didn't arrive in this place through the doors of death. What exactly is your friend doing, if I may ask? Margaret looked with suspicion down the empty hallway. This is very unusual. He wants to say goodbye to someone. Someone he lost. Have you had a woman and a little girl come here recently? Yule asked. Margaret sighed and looked out the window at the tide pulling away from the shore. A grieving husband, looking for his wife and daughter. And you aren't dead either, are you? Why come all this way with him? Yule hesitated and then said, I suppose because I told him I would help. We've gone a little farther than I expected, but I gave him my word. He's dying because of this grief, and I thought... Before Yule could finish, Shannon walked into the room and sat down next to him. The others were in their separate rooms, fast asleep in clean beds. Shannon, Yule said, I was just telling Margaret about you. She knows where we should go next. Isn't that right? Margaret looked at Yule and then at Shannon. There's something you're not telling me, isn't there? Don't lie. I've been around long enough. I've seen it all. Why are you so desperate to see your family again? You know you can't take them back with you, and you can't go where they're going. You should go back home before you see something you don't want to see. I need to see them. I'm not interested in discussing it with anyone, Shannon said through gritted teeth. Shannon, tell her what you told us just hours ago. Yule's tone was firm and authoritative. She doesn't need to know. Shannon stood up, pointing towards Margaret. Lower your voice, Yule said. You'll wake the others. We've put them through enough these past weeks. You can at least give them a decent rest. Tell her. Shannon's hands fell to his sides, and he felt hot shame creep up his neck and flush into his face. His anger and bitterness began to melt into sorrow, and it was in this halfway stage that he told Margaret everything. His life, his family, the affair, the crash, everything. He paced the floors and took breaks to breathe and wipe away the tears, and when he was done, the three of them sat in silence for a long time. Margaret sat by his side and put her hand on his shoulder and offered him a tissue. I'll tell you everything I know, she said. West of here, about three days' journey by boat, there is another shore. I don't know if it's an island or a continent. I've seen it, but I have never set foot on it because it is not my time to go there yet. I don't know if anyone ever comes back, but I know it is the final leg of the journey for the dead passing through here. Yule, if you take this boat ride, you must not set foot on that beach, or you will never return to the land of the living. Shannon, if you are serious about seeing your wife and daughter again, then know that this life is over for you as well. I don't know what's waiting for you beyond that black sandy shore, and I don't even know if it's safe, but I know it is a necessary part of the journey, and I know it is not the end. 
There's a trail that the dead follow. You'll see it as soon as you land. You can take your companions, the woman and the two men with you, but you may be separated after a short while. It is a solitary journey, not meant for company. When can we leave? Shannon said. Tomorrow, at first light. But Shannon, I must ask you this. How will you live if you cannot be forgiven by your wife and your daughter? If you cannot find them, or if they cannot speak to you? Will you be able to find a way to forgive yourself and live, even if you cannot get what you want from them? Remember, it's not their burden to bear, it is yours. So, how will you bear it? Shannon had no response. He lay awake all night, tossing and turning, and still had no response. He wanted to die. He wanted to live. He needed to see his family, but he wanted to give them up. He was determined to go. He was terrified. He was kept aloft by some awful force. Spite, will, resolve. There was no name for it but it animated his mind against his body, propelling him towards an ending he wasn't even sure he wanted anymore. That morning, before the dawn burst over the mountain behind them in brilliant pink and orange and blue colors, the five travelers ate a warm breakfast and took new cloaks from Margaret's closet. When Ewell asked how they could return the goods once they reached the shore, Margaret simply said, "'Things tend to find their way back here after I lend them out.'" With that, the five boarded the boat and untied it from the dock. The sun warmed their backs as the wind picked up and the waves propelled them west until the dock and the house behind them were like a miniature figurine, and then a speck, and then they were gone. Shannon stood at the bow with Safia next to him. Oliver, Pierre, and Yule took up the stern. As they flew from the shore, Safia whistled a tune, but for the life of him, Shannon couldn't remember where he knew it from. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of West of the Sea. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave a five-star review in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. It really helps get the word out. See you next week on West of the Sea.